Chapter Two of Deephaven. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush in Marquette, Michigan, December two thousand seven. Deephaven by Sarah Orrin Jewett. Chapter Two, The Brandon House and the Lighthouse. I do not know that the Brandon House is anything very remarkable, but I never have been in one that interests me in the same way. Kate used to recount to select audiences at school some of her experiences with her Aunt Catherine, and it was popularly believed that she once carried down some indestructible picture books when they were first in fashion, and the old lady basted them for her to hem round the edges at the rate of two a day. It may have been fabulous. It was impossible to imagine any children in the old place. Everything was for grown people. Even the stair railing was too high to slide down on. The chairs looked as if they had been put at the furnishing of the house in their places, and there they meant to remain. The carpets were particularly interesting, and I remember Kate's pointing out to me one day a great square figure in one. And telling me she used to keep house there with her dolls for lack of a better playhouse, and if one of them chanced to fall outside the boundary stripe, it was immediately put to bed with a cold. It is a house with great possibilities. It might easily be made charming. There are four very large rooms on the lower floor and six above, a wide hall in each story, and a fascinating garret over the whole. Where were many mysterious old chests and boxes, in one of which we found Kate's grandmother's love letters, and you may be sure the vista of rummages which Mr. Lancaster had laughed about was explored to its very end. The rooms all have elaborate cornices, and the lower hall is very fine, with an archway dividing it, and panellings of all sorts, and a great door at each end, through which the lilacs in front. And the old pensioner plum trees in the garden are seen exchanging bows and gestures. Coming from the Lancasters' high city house, it did not seem as if we had to go upstairs at all there, for every step of the stairway is so broad and low, and you come halfway to a square landing with an old straight-backed chair in each farther corner, and between them a large round-topped window with a cushioned seat. Looking out on the garden and the village, the hills far inland, and the sunset beyond all. Then you turn and go up a few more steps to the upper hall, where we used to stay a great deal. There were more old chairs and a pair of remarkable sofas on which we used to deposit the treasures collected in our wanderings. The wide window, which looks out on the lilacs and the sea, was a favorite seat of ours. Facing each other on the either side of it are two old secretaries, and one of them we ascertained to be the hiding place of secret drawers, in which may be found valuable records deposited by ourselves one rainy day when we first explored it. We wrote between us a tragic journal on some yellow old letter paper we found in the desk. We put it in the most hidden drawer by itself. And flatter ourselves that it will be regarded with great interest some time or other. Of one of the front rooms, the best chamber, we stood rather in dread. It is very remarkable that there seem to be no ghost stories connected with any part of the house, particularly this. 
We are neither of us nervous, but there is certainly something dismal about the room. The huge curtained bed and immense easy chairs, windows, and everything were draped in some old-fashioned kind of white cloth, which always seemed to be waving and moving about of itself. The carpet was most singularly colored, with dark reds and indescribable grays and browns, and the pattern, after a whole summer's study, could never be followed with one's eye. The paper was captured in a French prize somewhere, some time in the last century, and part of the figure was shaggy, and therein little spiders found habitation, and went visiting their acquaintances across the shiny places. The color was an unearthly pink, and a forbidding maroon, with dim white spots, which gave it the appearance of having molded. It made you low-spirited to look long in the mirror, and the great lounge one could not have cheerful associations with, after hearing that Miss Brandon herself did not like it, having seen so many of her relatives lie there dead. There were fantastic china ornaments from Bible subjects on the mantel, and the only picture was one of the Maid of Orleans, tied with an unusually strong rope to a very stout stake. The best parlor we also rarely used, because all the portraits which hung there had, for some unaccountable reason, taken a violent dislike to us, and followed us suspiciously with their eyes. The furniture was stately and very uncomfortable, and there was something about the room which suggested an invisible funeral. There is not very much to say about the dining-room. It was not specially interesting, though the sea was in sight from one of the windows. There were some old Dutch pictures on the wall, so dark that one could scarcely make out what they were meant to represent, and one or two engravings. There was a huge sideboard, for which Kate had brought down from Boston Miss Brandon's own silver, which had stood there for so many years, and looked so much more at home and in place than any other possibly could have looked, and Kate also found in the closet the three great decanters with silver labels chained round their necks, which had always been the companions of the tea-service in her aunt's lifetime. From the little closets in the sideboard there came a most significant odor of cake and wine whenever one opened the doors. We used Miss Brandon's beautiful old blue India china, which she had given to Kate, and which had been carefully packed all winter. Kate sat at the head and I at the foot of the round table, and I must confess that we were apt to have either a feast or a famine, for at first we often forgot to provide our dinners. If this were the case, Maggie was sure to serve us with most derisive elegance, and made us wait for as much ceremony as she thought necessary for one of Mrs. Lancaster's dinner-parties. The west parlor was our favorite room downstairs. It had a great fireplace framed in blue and white Dutch tiles, which ingenuously and instructively represented the careers of the good and the bad man, the starting-place of each being a very singular cradle in the center, at the top. The last two of the series are very high art. A great coffin stands in the foreground of each, and the virtuous man is being led off by two disagreeable-looking angels, while the wicked one is hastening from an indescribable but unpleasant assemblage of claws and horns, and eyes which is rapidly advancing from the distance, open-mouthed and bringing a chain with it. There was a large cabinet holding all the small curiosities and knick-knacks there seemed to be no other place for, odd china figures and cups and vases, 
unaccountable Chinese carvings and exquisite corals and seashells, minerals and Swiss woodwork, and articles of virtue from the South Seas. Underneath were stored boxes of letters and old magazines, for this was one of the houses where nothing seems to have been thrown away. In one parting we found a parcel of old manuscript sermons, the existence of which was a mystery, until Kate remembered there had been a gifted son of the house who entered the ministry and soon died. The windows had each a pane of stained glass, and on the wide sills we used to put our immense bouquets of field flowers. There was one place which I liked and sat in more than any other. The chimney filled nearly the whole side of the room, all but this little corner, where there was just room for a very comfortable high-backed cushioned chair, and a narrow window, where I always had a bunch of fresh green ferns in a tall champagne glass. I used to write there often, and always sat there when Kate sang and played. She sent for a tuner, and used to successfully coax the long-imprisoned music from the antique piano, and sing for her visitors by the hour. She almost always sang her oldest songs, for they seemed most in keeping with everything about us. I used to fancy that the portraits liked our being there. There was one young girl, who seemed solitary and forlorn among the rest in the room, who were all middle-aged. For their part, they looked amiable, but rather unhappy, as if she had come in and interrupted their conversation. We both grew very fond of her, and it seemed, when we went in the last morning on purpose to take leave of her, as if she looked at us imploringly. She was soon afterward boxed up, and now enjoys society after her own heart in Kate's room in Boston. There was the largest sofa I ever saw opposite the fireplace. It must have been brought in in pieces and built in the room. It was broad enough for Kate and me to lie on together, and very high and square. But there was a pile of soft cushions at one end. We used to enjoy it greatly in September, when the evenings were long and cool, and we had many candles and a fire, and crickets too, on the hearth, and the dear dog lying on the rug. I remember one rainy night, just before Miss Tennant and Kitty Bruce went away, we had a real driftwood fire, and blew out the lights and told stories. Miss Margaret knows so many, and tells them so well. Kate and I were unusually entertaining, for we became familiar with the family record of the town, and could recount marvellous adventures by land and sea, and ghost stories by the dozen. We had never, either of us, been in a society consisting of so many travelled people. Hardly a man but had been the most of his life at sea. Speaking of ghost stories, I must tell you that once in the summer two Cambridge girls, who were spending a week with us, unwisely enticed us into giving some thrilling recitals, which nearly frightened them out of their wits, and Kate and I were finally in terror ourselves. We had all been on the sofa in the dark, singing and talking, and were waiting in great suspense after I had finished one of such particular horror that I declared it should be the last, when we heard footsteps on the hall stairs. There were lights in the dining-room, which shone faintly through the half-closed door, and we saw something white and shapeless come slowly down, and clutched each other's gowns in agony. It was only Kate's dog, who came in and laid his head on her lap, and slept peacefully. We thought we could not sleep a wink after this, and I bravely went alone out to the light to see my watch, 
and finding it was past twelve, we concluded to sit up all night and to go down to the shore at sunrise. It would be so much easier than getting up early some morning. We had been out rowing and had taken a long walk the day before, and were obliged to dance and make other slight exertions to keep ourselves awake at one time. We lunched at two, and I never shall forget the sunrise that morning. But we were singularly quiet and abstracted that day, and indeed for several days after Deephaven was a land in which it seemed always afternoon we breakfasted so late. As Mrs. Q had said, there was a power of China. Kate and I were convinced that the lives of her grandmothers must have been spent in giving tea-parties. We counted ten sets of cups, beside quantities of stray ones, and some member of the family had evidently devoted her time to making a collection of pictures. There was an escritoire in Miss Brandon's own room, which we looked over one day. There was a little package of letters, ship letters mostly, tied with a very pale and tired-looking blue ribbon. They were in a drawer with a locket, holding a faded miniature on ivory and a lock of brown hair, and there were also some dry twigs and bits of leaf, which had long ago been dried wild roses, such as still bloom among the Deephaven rocks. Kate said that she had often heard her mother wonder why her aunt never had cared to marry, for she had chances enough, doubtless, and had been rich and handsome and finely educated. So there was a sailor lover after all, and perhaps he had been lost at sea, and she faithfully kept the secret, never mourning outwardly. "'And I always thought her the most matter-of-fact old lady,' said Kate. "'Yet here's her romance after all.' We put the letters outside on a chair to read, but afterwards carefully replaced them, without untying them. I'm glad we did. There were other letters which we did read, and which interested us very much, letters from her girlfriends written in the boarding-school vacations, and just after she finished school. Those in one of the similar packages were charming. It must have been such a bright, nice girl who wrote them. They were very few, and were tied with black ribbon, and marked on the outside in girlish writing. My dearest friend, Dolly McAllister, died September 3, 1809, aged 18. The ribbon had evidently been untied, and the letters read many times. One began, My dear delightful kitten, I am quite overjoyed to find my father has business, which will force him to go to Deephaven next week, and he kindly says, if there be no more rain, I may ride with him to see you. I will surely come, for if there is danger of spattering my gown, and he bids me stay at home, I shall go galloping after him and overtake him when it is too late to send me back. I have so much to tell you. I wish I knew more about the visit. Poor Miss Catherine. It made us sad to look over these treasures of her girlhood. There were her compositions and exercise books— some samplers and queer little keepsakes, withered flowers and some pebbles, and other things of like value, with which there was probably some pleasant association. "'Only think of her keeping them all her days,' said I to Kate. "'I am continually throwing some relic of the kind away, because I forget why I have it.' There was a box in the lower part, which Kate was glad to find, for she had heard her mother wonder if some such things were not in existence." It held a crucifix and a mass-book and some rosaries, and Kate told me Miss Catherine's youngest and favorite brother had become a Roman Catholic while studying in Europe. 
It was a dreadful blow to the family, for in those days there could have been few deeper disgraces to the Brandon family than to have one of its sons go over to Popery. Only Miss Catherine treated him with kindness, and after a time he disappeared without telling even her where he was going, and was only heard from indirectly once or twice afterward. It was a great grief to her. "'And Mama knows,' said Kate, "'that she always had a lingering hope of his return, "'for one of the last times she saw Aunt Catherine, before she was ill, "'she spoke of soon going to be with all the rest, "'and said, "'Though your Uncle Henry, dear,' and stopped, and smiled sadly, "'you'll think me a very foolish old woman, "'but I never quite gave up thinking he might come home.' "'Mrs. Q. did the honors of the lighthouse thoroughly on our first visit,' but I think we rarely went to see her that we did not make some entertaining discovery. Mr. Q.'s nephew, a guileless youth of forty, lived with them, and the two men were of a mechanical turn, and had invented numerous aids to housekeeping, appendages to the stove, and fixtures on the walls for everything that could be hung up, catches in the floor to hold the doors open, and ingenious apparatus to close them, but above all a system of barring and bolting for the wide four-door, which would have disconcerted an energetic battering-ram. After all this work being expended, Mrs. Q. informed us that it was usually wide open all night in summer weather. On the back of this door I discovered one day a row of marks, and asked their significance. It seemed that Mrs. Q. had attempted one summer— to keep count of the number of people who inquired about the depredations of the neighbor's chickens. Mrs. Q.'s bedroom was partly devoted to the fine arts. There was a large collection of likenesses of her relatives and friends on the wall, which was interesting in the extreme. Mrs. Q. was always much pleased to tell their names, and her remarks about any feature not exactly perfect were very searching and critical. "'That's my oldest brother's wife!' Clorinthy Adams, that was. She's well-featured, if it were not for that nose, and that looks as if it had been thrown at her, and she wasn't particular about having it on firm, in hopes of getting a better one. She sets by her looks, though. There were often sailing parties that came there from up and down the coast. One day Kate and I were spending the afternoon at the light, we had been fishing, and were sitting in the doorway listening to a reminiscence of the winter Mrs. Q. kept school at the Four Corners, saw a boatful coming, and all lost our tempers. Mrs. Q. had a lame ankle, and Kate offered to go up with the visitors. There were some girls and young men who stood on the rocks a while, and then asked us, with much better manners than the people who usually came, if they could see the lighthouse, and Kate led the way. She was dressed that day in a costume we both frequently wore, of grey skirts and blue sailor jacket, and her boots were much the worse for wear. The celebrated Lancaster complexion was rather darkened by the sun. Mrs. Q. expressed a wish to know what questions they would ask her, and I followed after a few minutes. They seemed to have finished asking about the lantern, and to have become personal. "'Don't you get tired staying here?' "'No, indeed,' said Kate. "'Is that your sister downstairs?' "'No, I have no sister.' "'I should think you would wish she was. Aren't you ever lonesome?' "'Everybody is sometimes,' said Kate. "'But it's such a lonesome place,' said one of the girls. "'I should think you would get work away. I live in Boston, 
"'Why, it's so awful quiet, nothing but the water and the wind when it blows, "'and I think either of them is worse than nothing, "'and only this little bit of a rocky place. "'I should want to go for a walk.' I heard Kate pleasantly refuse the offer of pay for her services, and then they began to come down the steep stairs laughing and chattering with each other. Kate stayed behind to close the doors and leave everything all right, and the girl who had talked the most waited too, and when they were on the stairs just above me and the others out of hearing, she said, "'You're real good to show us the things. I guess you'll think I'm silly, but I do like you ever so much. I wish you would come to Boston.' I'm in a real nice store, H's, on Winter Street, and they will want new saleswomen in October. Perhaps you could be at my counter. I'd teach you, and you could board with me. I've got a real comfortable room, and I suppose I might have more things, for I get good pay. But I like to send money home to Mother. I'm at my aunt's now, but I am going back next Monday, and if you will tell me what your name is— I'll find out for certain about the place and write to you. My name's Mary Wendell. I knew by Kate's voice that she had touched her. You are very kind, thank you heartily, said she, but I cannot go and work with you. I should like to know more about you. I live in Boston, too. My friend and I are staying over in Deephaven for the summer only. And she held out her hand to the girl, whose face had changed from its first expression of earnest good humor to a very startled one. And when she noticed Kate's hand, and a ring of hers, which had been turned round, she looked really frightened. "'Oh, will you please excuse me?' said she, blushing. "'I ought to have known better. But you showed us round so willing, and I never thought of your not living here. I didn't mean to be rude.' "'Of course you did not, and you were not.' "'I'm very glad you said it, and glad you like me,' said Kate. And just then the party called the girl, and she hurried away, and I joined Kate. "'Then you heard it all? That was worth having,' said she. "'She was such an honest little soul, and I mean to look for her when I get home.' Sometimes we used to go out to the light early in the morning, with the fishermen who went that way to the fishing grounds, but we usually made the voyage early in the afternoon if it were not too hot.' and we went fishing off the rocks, or sat in the house with Mrs. Q, who often related some of her Vermont experiences, or Mr. Q would tell us surprising sea-stories and ghost-stories like a story-book sailor. Then we would have an unreasonably good supper, and afterward climb the ladder to the lantern to see the lamps lighted, and sit there for a while, watching the ships and the sunset. Almost all the coasters came in sight of Deephaven, and the sea outside the light was their grand highway. Twice from the lighthouse we saw a yacht squadron, like a flock of great white birds. As for the sunsets, it used to seem often as if we were near the heart of them, for the sea all around us caught the color of the clouds, and though the glory was wonderful, I remember best one still evening, when there was a bank of heavy gray clouds in the west, shutting down like a curtain, and the sea was silver-colored." You could look under and beyond the curtain of clouds into the palest, clearest yellow sky. There was a little black boat in the distance, drifting slowly, climbing one white wave after another, as if it were bound out into that other world beyond. But presently the sun came from behind the clouds, and the dazzling golden light changed the look of everything, and it was the time then to say one thought it a beautiful sunset 
while before one could only keep very still and watch the boat, and wonder if heaven would not be somehow like that far faint color which was neither sea nor sky. When we came down from the lighthouse and it grew late, we would beg for an hour or two longer on the water, and row away in the twilight far out from land, where, with our faces turned from the light, it seemed as if we were alone and the sea shoreless, and as the darkness closed round us softly, we watched the stars come out, and were always glad to see Kate's star and my star, which we had chosen when we were children. I used long ago to be sure of one thing, that however far away heaven might be, it could not be out of sight of the stars. Sometimes in the evening we waited out at sea for the moonrise, and then we would take the oars again and go slowly in, once in a while singing or talking, but oftenest silent. End of chapter 2